12.09 p.m. on Friday, April 21st, 2023. Well done. Oh, listen to that. It's uh, it's like the presidential march version of the NPR Politics Podcast. So classy. Yeah. That's how we do. We keep it classy <laughs> with a capital K. <laughs> hey there. It's the NPR Politics Podcast. I'm Ashley Lopez. I cover politics. I'm Susan Davis. I also cover politics. And I'm Domenico Montanaro, senior political editor and correspondent. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis was in Washington, D.C. this week, hoping to get a little love from his fellow Republicans and maybe boost his cred as a possible challenger to Donald Trump. And it did not go well. It didn't. You know, Ron DeSantis has not formally declared he's running for president, but he's doing all the things you do when you want to run for president. He's written a book. He's traveling to early states. He's formed a super PAC. And he came to Capitol Hill to do sort of, you know, a bit of a charm offensive. And it had the opposite effect. You know, he came to Capitol (laughs) Hill. He met behind closed doors with a lot of Republican members. And by the end of this week, uh, Donald Trump has racked up more endorsements, not just from members of Congress, but from now half of the Florida Republican delegation. I mean, after these meetings, more Republicans came out and said, we support Donald Trump. And, you know, obviously just bad PR, but also in the olden pre-Trump days of politics, if a governor was running, you oftentimes had your delegation behind you, if for no other reason than it was good state politics, right, in the in the short term. And the fact that so many are breaking with DeSantis and saying, you know, Donald Trump is the right nominee for us is, is just obviously not good for him. And I think it does speak to one of the deficits that DeSantis has in this primary is he has a personality deficit. One of the reasons, uh, you know, a lawmaker like Greg Stube, uh, one of the Republicans who came out this week, basically just said he's got a personality problem. And and people don't think that he has sort of the retail political charm it takes to win and especially to be a guy like Trump. And politicians like voters want to be wooed. And, you know, DeSantis really hasn't done a lot of that spate work that a lot of these politicians want to see. And, you know, through the years, when you start adding up the public endorsements, they do tend to be an indicator of who winds up winning a presidential primary. And right now, it's not looking good for DeSantis. You know, he's really struggled over these last few months. He's been pummeled by former President Trump on the airwaves, nonetheless. Pretty bold move. Uh, And DeSantis, really behind the eight ball, he, you know, started running one ad, at least a super PAC that was supporting him, but really hasn't landed as firmly as what Trump has done. So, I mean, he hasn't really made inroads, right, with lawmakers on the Hill, but he's been traveling the country. I mean, he was in New Hampshire, Ohio, Iowa, trying to gather some momentum among Republican voters who, you know, the at least the small percentage who seem eager for an alternative to Trump. But, you know, so far, it seems like he has avoided taking on Trump directly. Especially following Trump's in recent indictment, you know, DeSantis made a big point to, as all potential rivals did, like get behind the president. He even went so far to say that he wouldn't participate in any role to extradite him out of the state of Florida and send him to New York. You know, DeSantis is a, a rough and tumble politician, right? Like he has a reputation for being really aggressive, but towards the media, towards what he would call the quote unquote woke left, like he has he has it in him. But I think he's facing the same problem that a lot of other Republicans have 
is that, like, how do you go at Trump without alienating the Trump voter, right? Like, if it's not going to be Trump and you want it to be you, you still need Trump's people. And that is the magical, impossible needle for any Republican rival to thread. And I think in the beginning, a lot of people thought DeSantis could be the guy because he does seem to have like a grit and an intensity to him. And again, he won big in the 2022 midterms. Like the the tale of the midterms was that like these Trump endorsed candidates lost. The more Trumpier you were, you didn't have a chance. And DeSantis won Florida big by double digits. He won Miami-Dade. It was like, oh, wow, is he is he the guy? And you've just sort of seen this precipitous decline in his favorability among Republican primary voters since that point. And I think Trump still has the power to define his opponents and land the punch. And his opponents, none of them really, I don't think, have found a way to land a a punch against Trump, but not piss off the Trump voter. Well, and to that point, what is their message? You know, what are the Trump alternatives messages rather than, oh, you know, I'm pretty good too. You know, like that that's not going to work. It's its not something that you're going to be able to just hope Trump fades away. There has to be, when I talk to Republican strategists, a concerted, sustained effort to take on Trump with his most glaring vulnerabilities. And nobody in the party has been willing to do that so far, including DeSantis. It's to exactly the point of what you're talking about. I mean, I listened to an NBC interview, for example, with Tim Scott, the senator from South Carolina, who's launched an exploratory committee, not 100% in the race yet, but he was asked a couple times about Trump and he just said he wanted to talk about himself. And, you know, that's not going to work. I mean, I wonder how much is just like the fear of coming out of this totally scathed. You know, former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo announced this week that he's not going to be jumping into the race to unseat Trump. I wonder how much of that was, you know, just a little bit of fear of getting in a race like this. I I wonder what you make, Sue, of what the slate of Republican potential candidates is now. You know, it's still really at this point looks like a Trump DeSantis race and then everybody else. I mean, the only candidate that's even polling in a way that raises eyes is DeSantis. Everyone else's single digits are in the rounding error. So, you know, it's still really early. DeSantis isn't even formally in the race. We've got months and months and months before Iowa. He does have a lot of credibility among evangelical voters, which play an outsized role in determining the Republican nomination. He polls really well with people who have college educated degrees. Trump polls better with blue collar, you know, the sort of divisions within the party. Like, I I don't I don't want to dismiss DeSantis as a real contender in this race. He just had a really bad week. But at the same time, I think that part of the bigger picture here is that Donald Trump remains the favorite to win the nomination and that it's going to be really, really hard to beat him, especially if the field does not consolidate behind one alternative. If, you know, you said Pompeo decided to get out, but other people are still looking to get in, the more candidates that get in, and Domenico's made this point a lot, might actually make Trump stronger because it will dilute the anti-Trump vote and create more of a path for him to get what he needs to win with a plurality. Yeah. Well, uh, let's pivot then to the Democratic side. Uh, President Biden, as we know, has not yet formally announced. But this week, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. said he would be running against Biden. Two things come to mind here. I mean, Kennedy, this is one of the most famous political family names in America. And he's probably most famous now for being anti-vaccines, which is sort of an interesting resume there. Domenico, your thoughts on him entering the race? 
Well, you know, Democratic strategists sort of like raise eyebrows a little bit on this or texted me this week about how concerned they are somewhat with the Kennedy name as yeah. something for people who don't pay that close attention to politics, you know, that this could be a potential problem and not necessarily in a primary. I mean, it could be a bit of a nuisance, but if for some reason he decided to run as an independent uh, in a general election, there'd be a real problem for Biden because just think about like what name means. You know, people see a name, they recognize a name, they have an immediate draw to it, and they might go for that. And at the, when you have an election that's at the margins, it can be a real problem. But, you know, the Republican electorate is very divided over who they want to be their nominee. The Democratic yeah. electorate is not. Democrats yeah. want Joe Biden <laughs> to be their nominee. And the thing about a candidate like RFK Jr., who's pretty controversial, I also remember we don't know what the debates and what things are going to look like. But remember, in the last presidential election, and it's reasonable to conclude Democrats might do this again, they did set up barriers for entry. Like in order to get onto a debate stage, in order to move forward, you had to be polling at a certain number, you had to raise a certain amount of money. So he's probably going to have to prove that he has some critical mass of support for the party to put him on a debate stage with an incumbent president, particularly considering the controversial views that he holds about vaccine science that I am doubtful that the Democratic Party would be very interested in giving a platform to. Well, Domenico and Sue, thanks for joining. Sue, don't go too far because you'll be back for Can't Let It Go and coming up in February, Senator John Fetterman did something incredibly rare for politicians. He checked himself into a hospital to treat clinical depression. Fetterman stayed in the hospital for six weeks. He's back in the Senate now, and he sat down with Scott Detrow to talk about it. More on that after this break. And we're back and now joined by Scott Detrow. Scott, this week, um, you were able to sit down and get a pretty extended interview with Pennsylvania Senator John Fetterman. So this was his first sit down since he returned to the Senate after a six week hospital stay to treat clinical depression. Yeah. Why don't you tell us, you know, how that came to be and, and what happened? It has been a very intense 12 months for John Fetterman. Yeah. To, to recap, he ran in the most high-profile Senate race in the country last year, the, the race that everyone rightly viewed as the one that would decide control of the Senate. And right in the middle right. of that race, he suffers a serious stroke. He's off the trail for months. When he gets back, he really struggles to communicate and 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 process uh, speech. It's something that, that he needed help with with closed captioning devices. And there was just incredible pressure, and that's something he talked about in the interview, and the, how that intense pressure and that health scare and that recovery really made depression that he had struggled with for years a lot more serious, and it just got worse after he got to D.C. So he made this decision to pull himself from the Senate to enter Walter Reed Hospital and get six weeks of treatment for clinical depression. So he's been back. This is his first week back, and uh, I sat down with him in his office at the end of that first week. So you're back. You chaired your first subcommittee hearing this week. It's been a full week. Mm -hmm. uh, your yeah. your colleagues gave you a standing ovation when you came back into the Democratic caucus meeting. How's everything feeling? I, I can't tell you how moving it was to me. Now, I would have been blown away if it was just a if it was just just warm, but an ova standing ovation and 
and hugs and I'm so grateful to our colleagues uh, and to, to leader Schumer also had it so that I was able it made it possible for me to be there setting the tone from the top down that 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 you know that that either me or anyone in this kind of situation you know they're it's 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 one of us and we need to provide the opportunity to get healthy how different did it feel coming into the Senate being in the Senate this week compared to when you first arrived in January <laughs> It was just a big smile. You know, I've really missed being being here. When I was in the throes of depression, to be 100% honest, uh, I was not the kind of senator that, that was deserved by Pennsylvania. I wasn't the, the kind of par- partner that I, 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 to my wife, uh, Giselle, or to, to my children, you know, uh, Carl, Grace, and, and August. It wasn't the kind of father. One of the best sentences that I ever heard in my life was was my doctors just sitting when we were in a, in a meeting, and they said, "John, we believe your depression is in remission." Yeah. And at first, I didn't I didn't believe that, and now my depression is in remission, and that's why coming back to to home and coming back to the Senate has been joy. You've said. You want to use this moment to talk about mental health, to talk about depression. Can you tell somebody who's maybe lucky enough to have not had to deal with depression what it felt like in those moments early on in the Senate term? You've talked about feeling empty being sworn into office. It should be this this big moment in your life. And you said it didn't feel that way at all. Yeah. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm grateful to have the ability to try to pay it forward. Yeah. And I would just say this. I try to be kind of, I want to be, say the kinds of things that I would have heard years ago that got me, you know, into action. Yeah. And I would tell anybody listening to, to this is if you suffer from de- de- depression or you, you have a, no, a loved one, you know, please let them know. Please know that you, you don't need to just suffer without treatment. If I'd have done that years ago, I would not have had to put my family with that if I'd have gotten help. When you were dealing with depression for so long, how would you characterize how you were personally dealing with it? Were you denying that it was even there? Or were you saying, this is here, this is a real thing, but I'm going to push through it, I'm going to ignore it? Um, I was I was so depressed that I didn't even realize how I was depressed. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't even understand it. Just, to me, that just became you know, the, the, the new normal. I, I wasn't realizing I wasn't eating. I wasn't eating. I, I didn't realize that I wasn't really dr- drinking much. I, I dropped 25 pounds um, and uh, was, you know, sometimes would say things, incoherent things. I knew I was something was wrong. They knew that, that I was not, wasn't right. Uh, but even at that moment, I was still kind of, I pushed back a, about it too sometimes saying, are you sure? I don't really need it. I'm good. Okay, wait, no, 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 I got it. Because yeah. then when, when, when it was really come to that choice, like you need to, I'm going to walk in here and, and, and sign myself in. I thought for a second, I'm like, oh, no, no, wait a minute. I, I, I'm fine. All right, never mind. I got this. I got this. I got this. I got this. I'm noticing that you're, you're being really reflective and looking back saying, I wasn't, I wasn't doing this the right way with my family. I wasn't approaching this job the right way. I was ignoring this. What did you learn about yourself during the six weeks in the hospital that you didn't know before? For, for my family, it was hard because 
I was I I I was I was ashamed. Yeah, I was ashamed, uh, and that was probably the single hardest thing in in all that is, is when I think about that. Um, did you talk to your family about those feelings, and what did they tell you? Yeah, no. The day I was signed in to the hospital was my son's fourteenth birthday, and. Uh, I think back when I was 14 years old, what if this would have been what happened to me? But but the uh, only thing he wanted to do was he just wanted to go to a restaurant. Yeah. And, and and my wife was on his way to take him there, and she uh, they all had to turn it around. Yeah. And my fear is is that his birthday will you remember as the day that dad was was signed in. And but in the six in the six weeks was about me kind of redeeming trying to redeem myself yeah you know in their eyes and 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 they were never harsh on me they this just created a path to a safe place but but i felt like i didn't deserve to have like a a, a safe place there you still sound very hard on yourself no no I, i i wasn't hard on me because they you know the family was put through a really difficult this is really hard for myself. My oldest son had yeah. a conversation where he, he was having a hard time understanding why, Dad, why aren't you depressed? Like, you ran and you, you won. And, and I, uh, I, I tried to explain to them, like, you know, geez, you know, uh, Carl, like, I, I had a stroke and, and, you know, all of these ads and everything. And, uh, and he's like, but, but aren't we enough? Aren't aren't we enough? And and when when she, when when he asked, aren't we enough? Is this is that they should be that they are enough? Yeah. But at that time, I wasn't able to not feel this, this kind of depression, and 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 that's you know those six weeks was was for me was like every week was about me trying to work back enough. Uh, to to be to be worthy. Yeah, I want to use the rest of the interview to talk about what comes next and talk about how you're going to approach approach your job now that you're back in the Senate. And I wanted to start by just taking a moment to ask you about some of the criticism and also some of the concerns. Uh, you, you said yourself a moment ago that that when you were depressed, you didn't feel like you were the senator that Pennsylvania needed. Uh, I, I'm paraphrasing, but. I mean, the central attack against you during the campaign was you couldn't do the job due to your health problems. Then you got here and you had to spend six weeks in the hospital. And I'm wondering, do you feel yourself any extra pressure at this moment to say, hey, Pennsylvania, I'm here to represent you? Yeah, certainly. Any, and, you know, but I bet you some of those people that are criticizing me know somebody or they might be someone that, that faces depression in their lives as well. Yeah. And and I just always try to tell people by saying it's not a Democratic or a Republican area, it's it's a hum, it's humanity, and you know there's people from, no matter where you live, no matter what your political views are, is is that that you suffer from depression or you know somebody there, and and uh, you know what a critic of me was it's my wife. Yeah. She said you have depression. You got it. You should do something to it. So, so she, and she was right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just because you know, like I thought every night when I was laying in bed uh, when I was in the hospital, we were like, why if I just would have 
what if I just would have done done something about this before? You know, and I, I could kick myself and I guess think about, you know, you know, uh, my family wouldn't have put through it. And, and even, again, you know, my constituents. But but right now, now that I am back, to me, I'm really committed to paying it forward on all of that and letting people know to anyone that that has any of these feelings, you know, you know, there's 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 a path and you can get better. You know, hearing politicians talk about emotions like shame, that seems so rare in public life. And I'm struck by just how how deep he got into some of these like more vulnerable emotions that he was feeling coming into and and coming out of his treatment. I mean, I don't know that that's a very common thing in politics. Yeah, the phrase that he and and his staff and and we at NPR and and people have heard it keep saying over and over again is this was just like a very raw conversation. Yeah. And you know, and yeah. you you could feel the emotion uh through all of it and you could feel him yeah. Being so frustrated at all of the lost time that he feels like he missed out on because he didn't want to try and treat this depression for so long and and how hard he wants to work to to actively address this going forward. And, of course, at the same time, try to get back into this this very high profile job of, of, of being a United States senator. Yeah, I also think it's interesting that this happened right after him winning a big election so much yeah. of like the expectation of getting a thing you want or winning something is that it solves all your problems you feel better about your life but i mean this is a really interesting example in which you know getting the thing that you worked hard for doesn't necessarily make your sort of mental health uh, battles any easier yeah he talks so much about the pressure of that race yeah. feeling like control of the senate comes down to you the, the the millions of dollars of negative ads uh, that, that just inundated from the campaigns from outside groups. And the pressure didn't let up after he won. In fact, I think it, it got worse. And he said something interesting right after the interview ended. He said that, that he would suggest anybody running statewide, anybody running in a high-profile race, hire a, a wellness coach or somebody on the staff whose job it is to make sure that they are mentally doing what they need to do to to survive the intense pressures of running yeah. on a campaign. Well, that was a really beautiful interview, Scott, and uh, amazing work. Uh, but don't go away. We're going to take a break, but I want you to stick around because when we come back, it's Can't Let It Go. And we're back. And Sue Davis is back for our favorite segment when we get to talk about the things that we just cannot let go of, politics or otherwise. Actually, Sue, let's start with you. What can't you let go of this week? The thing I can't let go this week, or I should say the person I cannot let go this week, is a woman named, I want to make sure I, I'm going to try to give her name due diligence, Beatrice Flamini. Mm-hmm. Beatrice is a endurance athlete. She's a 50-year-old woman from Madrid. And she made national, I should say global headlines, because she lived in a cave under 230 feet underground for five hundred days. I saw this. Oh wow. But the thing I can't let go about it is she came out of the cave and they had like a whole press conference. She loved it. Like she didn't <laughs> want to leave. She was like annoyed that they came down to get her and tell her that it was time to go. And she spent like five hundred she said she just really focused on like pleasure pursuits. She didn't have internet or any kind of like communications. She was totally unaware of what had gone on in the world. But she said she she read, she knitted, she did crafts. She's an endurance athlete, so she did a lot of exercise. This sounds great. She thrived. She found her best self yes. alone in back? the dark underground. This sounds like an introvert's dream. It does. 
a little bit. I don't know if you guys have ever been in a cave. I love being in caves. It's like the perfect temperature and it's kind of like damp inside. I remember the first time I went into a cave here in Texas, I was like, I think this is where I'm supposed to be. Like being above ground <laughs> just sucks so much in comparison. So I I do um I do like relate to her in this way, although I don't know that I could be without seeing people for that long because I'm not an introvert, but I think it's so interesting that she was able to do that. Very impressed by her. I mean, like, there's there's days where I feel like I would love to go to a cave and, yeah. and read and Same. not be talked to for 500 days. But do we know why she did this? Was she just like, I want to go to a cave. See you she later. She was part of a scientific study okay. in which they were trying to understand what isolation oh, and lack of sunlight does to your circadian rhythms, which mm. is like your awake and asleep yeah. cycles. Uh, and apparently it does wonders. For them. Oh. <laughs> I agree with you, Scott. Like, I don't think I could do 500 days, but like a long weekend alone yeah. in a cave with yeah. some good books and some snacks like i might sign up for that her cave itinerary sounded like my aspirations for like weekdays off that <laughs> yeah. never quite happen yeah like know? a productive alone day yeah. but you know on repeat so congrats to her and maybe we'll give it a try someday yeah actually what can't you let go of well so according to cnn this week it turns out that the great pacific garbage patch which is that 620,000 square mile swirl of trash that's like somewhere between California and Hawaii, has actually become like a thriving ecosystem for a bunch of creatures usually found on coasts. So a team of researchers found that dozens of species of coastal invertebrate organisms have been able to survive and even reproduce on the plastic garbage that we have all discarded and is now floating in the ocean and has been for years. I mean, it's kind of horrific, but I guess it's cool to hear some animals have found home there. (laughs) Honestly, this is a Disney Pixar movie. (laughs) It just sounds like these creatures that find something and make some kind of like tale out of it. I could see this being like an animated film in some way. I think they made that movie already. It was called WALL-E. Yeah. WALL-E with more trash. Yeah. WALL-E with even more trash. WALL-E part two. (laughs) I find it hard to get my head around that much trash just sitting in a blob in the ocean, but I guess it makes sense. It's very hard to comprehend, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) All right, uh, Scott, how about you? What can't you let go of this week? So original original podcast listeners, the real ones, know that there was a time where I spent a lot of time on this podcast talking about the the various merits of Sheets and Wawa, the two two, uh, convenience stores of choice for Pennsylvanians. Senator John Fetterman is very passionate on this issue. He As is, all elected officials in Pennsylvania need to be. <laughs> he is, and he, he is not somebody who tries to play both sides. He made it very clear when he ran for Senate he was a Sheets person, he ripped on Wawa all the time. I, I will note, since he's won, he has made some diplomatic visits to Wawa's and seems to be working on them. I'm a Wawa person, so I appreciate that. That's fair. But obviously he and I had a very serious uh, conversation. But given this, at the very end of the interview, I decided there was something I needed to ask him. And I guess one last very important question for you. It's been such an eventful year. So much has happened. I'm wondering if you've reconsidered whether Sheets is better than Wawa. (laughs) But I tell you what, I also have to say something, and this is, please don't, Sheets Nation doesn't go too hard on me. But but I've been, I've been, I've been cheating on on them with Royal Farms. Wow. Mm. Yeah. That's the news from Controversial. the Controversial. Yeah, Ra- Ra- Rafa, Rofa, yeah, has really been my, uh, uh, I, I got to have to admit it. I have to admit it. Royal Farms was, was, uh, was pretty good. And, and their chicken. At first, I was, in, I was a skeptic until I, I got it. And it's like, 
you know, check it out. You know, Rofa, you know, chicken is, is, is the real deal. So that's the news. That is of the interview. Yeah. <laughs> that's what's going to make news back in Pennsylvania out of that interview. I, I told his his staff that we were going to be playing this today. I said just so you can prepare for censure votes from like the the Altoona Democratic right, Party. The state house is <laughs> going to impeach soon. I will say, uh, as a native Pennsylvanian, we're uh, you know I grew up in the Philadelphia area, so obviously I grew up in a Wawa family. But I would say that uh, my family, when we get together at my brother's house, he lives in central Pennsylvania, uh, increasingly have also become a Royal Farms family because. The senator is correct. They have fried chicken. It is a cult favorite in Pennsylvania. And oftentimes at family gatherings, my brother Jerry will stop at the Royal Farms and pick up some chicken to bring to a family gathering. So (laughs) fact check true. (laughs) All right. That's a wrap for today. Our executive producer is Mithoni Maturi. Our editor is Eric McDaniel. Our producers are Elena Moore and Casey Morell. Thanks to Krishnadev Kalmer and Lexi Shapittle. I'm Ashley Lopez. I cover politics. I'm Susan Davis. I also cover politics. And I'm Scott Tetra. I cover the White House. And thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. One last thing before we go. Thanks also to our NPR Politics Plus listeners for supporting public media. Be sure to check out your feed this weekend for a new bonus episode where we'll take you inside the White House Correspondents' Dinner. And if you're not a supporter, you can sign up to hear that episode at plus.npr.org.